Hey everybody, Magnus here. So, supposedly there's some new Batman TV show coming soon. Now, at the moment, the rumors are that it'll basically be a Smallville version of Batman. All the characters, but none of the costumes or secret identities. So, I guess the same basic concept as Smallville, but applied to Batman. And, you know, whatever. I'll save my thoughts on that for some other time, but for now, what I want to say is that it seriously burns my balls when people call shit like this a prequel. Because it's not a fucking prequel. I'm going to give all of you a quick definition. All my loyal subjects are intelligent people. I'm sure that none of this is going to be news to any of you, but I'll tell you anyway just to be on the safe side. A prequel is a sequel to something. Don't let anybody tell you different. A prequel, by definition, is released after something else. Now, a prequel takes place earlier in the timeline than the original does, that much is true, but a prequel is still a sequel in that it must be released after something. An example we're probably all familiar with is Star Wars Episode One. That's a prequel. Star Wars was released back in 1977, and about 20 years down the road, along comes Episode One, which takes place about 30 years earlier in the timeline. Episode One is a prequel. That's the definition of the damn word. But Smallville, or whatever this fucking Batman show th turns into... Those aren't prequels because nothing pre-existed either of those stories. Sure, there's a Smallville spin-off comic book out there that picks up the storyline after the series finale, but there's no comic book or movie or TV show or video game or whatever else that told the adventures of the Smallville version of Superman before Smallville started. Smallville isn't a prequel to anything, and neither is this new Batman show. So, and this is, this is my point, so you don't get to call Gotham City or whatever the fuck this new Batman show ends up getting titled a prequel. Because I seriously fucking doubt it'll relate at all to stuff from Bill Dozier, Paul Dini, Tim Burton, Joel Schumacher, Chris Nolan, or fucking anybody else. The new Batman show isn't a prequel to jack fucking shit, so don't call it a prequel. Hey, your attention, please! This is a piece of art. His Kryptonian biological makeup is enhanced by Earth's yellow sun. Dr. Doom wears body to conceal his own mangled form. Worst episode ever. Why? Who shot first? Yeah. Who gives a shit? It's what's called super nerd nitpicking over something that's not really that important.
welcome back to Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host Magnus, and I talk about comics, movies, and TV shows. But mostly comics. On top of that, mostly superhero comics. And in some ways, today won't be much different. I'll I'll, I'll come back to that later, though. For now. It seems like I should tell you that this episode's been rolling around in the back of my head since... Fuck, before I even started Trennis Magnus Punch's reality. I knew I'd get to this at some point or another, even when I was first planning out all my subject matter for this podcast. Incidentally, some people call these things internet radio broadcasts. I don't do that, though not passing judgment on those who do call podcasts internet radio broadcasts. I just refuse to do it because I see it as coddling people's ignorance. You see, once upon a time, zippers weren't called zippers. Originally, they were called hookless fasteners. But nobody calls them that anymore because zipper is more descriptive and it's just a better label for what that invention does rather than what it doesn't do. Same thing with podcast. It's got nothing to do with radio, so using that word in relation to what we do is more misleading than the word podcast. Like I said, though, not passing judgment on what other people say. I just refuse to play ball. It's my only point. Anyway, so... This episode was originally supposed to have been released way back in the fall of 2013. But things don't always happen the way they are planned to sometimes. Here's an example. Out of nowhere, I came up with the idea of doing that Superman Begins series back in November. The idea of that series, actually it was October, but whatever. The idea of that series was to talk about various Superman origin stories from comics. And I was basically running with the concept of half-ass tying in with Man of Steel coming out on Blu-ray. I gotta tell you, it seemed like a simple enough decision at the time that I made it, but one result of it was that this episode, the one you're listening to right now, was pretty much completely fucking sidelined for months and months. Obviously. Because I'm only releasing this now as opposed to months ago. Come on, people. Keep up. Anyway, issue here is that I'm kind of stubborn. None of my ideas go away for too long. Seems like I always find a way to make them work in the end. And in the end, now seemed like a good time to shift gears a little bit and talk about something that's not quite a mainstream superhero comic. Now, look... Do not misunderstand me. I don't want to give the impression that I have some kind of problem with superhero comics. Because truth is, I don't. Obviously, I don't. Hell, superheroes are my favorite genre when it comes to comics. And movies and TV shows. Basically anything, really. I mean, shit, the title, Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, is itself a riff on a superhero comic. That's all bullshit anyway. My thing is... I've always believed comics can be and should be much more than just superheroes. I mean, comics can be anything. Anything at all. 
I mean, you ever wonder why Chris Honeywell and I uh, do those shows about the DC Paradox Press line of big books? It's because we both have an appreciation for nonfiction comic books, and we both know that comics have more to offer than just superheroes. But there's even more variety than nonfiction stuff like the big books. And I think now's the time to dive headfirst into that stuff. And because I'm me, I decided that you're all coming along with me. Because this is my podcast. Because I get to choose this show's content. Because I am Magnus. Because my word is law around here. Anyway. But yeah, I always wanted to talk about all different types of comics. And come on, I've talked plenty about standard, mainstream superhero stuff, at least for the moment. So why not check out a few other things? Of course, today's comic isn't completely off the beaten path. Nope. It's got a superhero in it. There's really no way around that, but at the same time, I don't think anybody thinks this is a typical mainstream superhero book like, well, I don't know, Spider-Man. Or the other stuff I usually talk about. Which leads me into exactly what we'll be talking about today. This is Sandman Mystery Theater number one through four. Written by Matt Wagner, drawn by Guy Davis, and colored by David Hornell. The first issue is fairly straightforward. A kidnapper known as the Tarantula has taken two victims and murdered at least one. One of the victims is Catherine a friend of Diane Belmont, a flighty socialite and one of the protagonists of the series. In the process of the plot unfolding, we're introduced to Wesley Dodds, also known as the Sandman. Diane seems to be in the middle of getting positioned to be Sandman's sidekick. The second issue amplifies on what happened in the first one, escalating the plot by showing Diane and Wesley becoming closer to one another and also showing us our first glimpse of the tarantula, a seriously demented and sick fuck of an individual. Catherine's still alive, and now the tarantula has taken another victim. There's also some fairly modern and PC thoughts about how shitty women had it back in the 1930s when they couldn't even pursue a career, and woe is them, and it's fucking bullshit because I don't think any men felt that way through most of the 1930s. I don't think they felt that way at all back then. But anyway, the issue ends with another kidnapping. The third chapter shows the case slowly being assembled separately by Sandman, Diane Belmont, and the police. Albert Goldman gets implicated in various money laundering schemes and very possibly the kidnappings. He's definitely guilty of molesting his daughter Celia. Speaking of Celia, she gets kidnapped by the end of the issue. The fourth issue wraps it all up. In fact, there's a handy dandy explanation of everything that's happened on page 24. I mention it because Wagner sums it all up in three panels. It's a pretty dense and complicated plot. But somehow the guy can knock it all out in three panels. Three panels. Don't fuck with Matt Wagner, people. The guy's a master. Anyway. So, what did I think? Well... Let me start by saying this isn't a Marvel Max comic by any stretch, but as far as content and language is concerned, it's definitely a lot harder than 
Comics Code approved DC stuff of about this time. And it's not just here for shock value either. The content is part of the story. The story leads to the content. None of it's arbitrary. Now, by the standards of the time this book came out, I'd say the plot of the story unfolds at pretty much a snail's pace. It's fairly typical of modern comics, though. There are plenty of scenes with characters just hanging around, talking to each other. It sets up the characters and the context of the story pretty, uh, pretty well. Things like this are absolutely essential, especially when you're doing a period piece, which is what Sandman Mystery Theater is. This story takes place in 1938, and I think it's vital to remember what a just weird time in American history that really was. I mean, during the time of 1938, not necessarily this story specifically, but just in general, during the late 1930s, you had issues like the rise of Nazism, anti-Semitism, the repeal of the 18th Amendment, and other shit going on. And that affects the culture and the context in which this story occurs. Luckily, Matt Wagner doesn't get lost in any of the historical bullshit. He can set that stuff up with just a few lines of dialogue without having to spend page after didactic page explaining everything. What I'm saying is Wagner is very efficient with his exposition. Guy doesn't waste a single line. The real star of the show, though, if you ask me, is Guy Davis. I have always loved art like this, at least when it's paired up with a story that makes sense for it. Davis has this sort of cartoony and really hatchy style. It's very, it's a very noirish and atmospheric type of style, and art like this paired up with something like The Flash or Spider-Man, it would, it would piss me right off, but it fits this story in general, and Sandman in particular, like a glove. Drawn art and illustrations have genres unto themselves. And I often say that I rather enjoy Frank Miller's art when he draws Sin City, but the rest of the time, yeah, his work just kind of leaves me cold, you know? I love John Romita Jr. when he draws street-level stuff like, like Daredevil. But an artist like that doesn't need to draw Superman. Mike Waringo, God rest his soul, probably isn't the ideal candidate to draw something like The Walking Dead, okay? And I'm saying all of this stuff just to kind of give you an idea of what I mean. Different artists are almost genres unto themselves, and it doesn't really work very well when you try to move artists around among different genres and try to get them to draw everything. It's the, it's the artist in a million that can draw everything. And that was my point in bringing up Frank Miller, John Romita Jr., and Mike Waringo. So, I bring all of this up to say that I don't like scratchy art most of the time. The kind of stuff that Guy Davis does. That's, that's what I normally say, but at the same time, I have to realize it's not true. I don't mind scratchy stuff like, like Guy Davis when it's paired with logical material. 
and putting Guy Davis on Sandman Mystery Theater makes all the sense in the world. I'd have a very different opinion if he were to draw, say, the Avengers in this style, but it fits Sandman Mystery Theater like a glove. Now, I'm not sure how many of you are going to relate to this, but Dark Horse published a couple of miniseries back in the 90s about the Shadow. And what really stands out to me as a comparison as a comparison to Sandman Mystery Theater is The Shadow in the Coils of Leviathan, which was drawn by Gary Gianni. I bring it up because in a way, like in a in a way Gary Gianni and Guy Davis have kind of similar art styles, at least in my mind. And I'm not just saying that because both of these stories are set in the 1930s. I mean, more that they have similar line styles. They use a lot of hatches, and they have this crazy ability to load every single page up with mood and atmosphere. I keep saying that the Guy Davis artwork in Sandman Mystery Theater is atmospheric and moody. Sort of pulpy, even. But I've seen people call it film noirish, and... You know... Maybe I'm being too literalist here, but to me, film noir has very specific types of visuals, and I just don't see too much of that in Sandman Mystery Theater. At least not so far. Now, maybe in future issues, he'll start using stuff that's more specific to film noir as a form. But the way that it is right now, I don't really connect to why people call it film noir. And I'm not criticizing his art either. I'm just saying that words have meaning. And I just don't see the film noir angle here. Now, normally I wouldn't do this, but I'm going to read a little something-something from the Wikipedia page about Sandman Mystery Theater. The reason is, well, the reason is because I find it really informative, this particular section. Now, this section of the wiki page gets a little bit more into the blood and guts of the art style of Sandman Mystery Theater than I was originally planning to do here. But at the same time, it's really good stuff, and you should know about it. So, the Wikipedia entry begins with, The first artist was Guy Davis, who defined the visual look of the character. Davis changed Dodds from the traditional portrayal as a tall, square-jawed figure, making him shorter, round-faced, and slightly overweight. He also gave Dodds a pair of round spectacles, visually echoing the round eyepieces of the gas mask he wore as the Sandman. Davis also redesigned the Sandman costume. In the original 1930s comics, the Sandman wore a green suit, purple cape, orange fedora, and blue and yellow gas mask. For Sandman Mystery Theater, the color palette was toned down to gray, olive green, and brown. The, su the superheroic trappings were downplayed in favor of a real-world sensibility, such as a trench coat instead of the cape. For the second and third story arcs, The Face and The Brute, art was provided by John Watkiss and R.G. Taylor, respectively. A minor controversy arose around the second storyline, The Face. A coloring error resulted in Asian characters being portrayed with bright yellow skin. The editor apologized for the error in the letter column of a subsequent issue. Guy Davis returned for the fourth arc and the remainder of the series with occasional additional work from Vince Locke 
and Warren Police. And that's where the Wikipedia section ends. Now, I mentioned the colorist, David Hornung, at the top of this thing when I was going through all the creator credits. And obviously the Wikipedia page touched on it too. And the reason I'm bringing it all up again here is because I regard David Hornung as a as an unindicted co-conspirator and creative contributor to this book. The coloring is integral to this comic. It just wouldn't be the same with a different color palette. And very bluntly, this is a pretty ugly color palette. Hornung avoids a lot of primary colors, your reds, blues, yellows, and so on. He steers the color design more toward oranges and greens and purples, grays, blacks, and the like. And most colors tend to be pretty drabby and desaturated. Just not bright, popping colors. Hornung obviously didn't want this to look like a regular comic book any more than Wagner wanted it to read like one. And it pays off, too. Enhances the mood of the, uh, of the story that's being told. If Hornung had used a more traditional color palette for this bad boy, it'd be a different book. And probably a lesser book. My point here is, don't underestimate what Hornung brings to the table here. He's every bit the creative contributor that Davis and Wagner are. Speaking of Matt Wagner, well, I haven't done too much of that through this whole spiel, now have I? But basically... Matt Wagner weaves a web of intrigue and suspense, but he never forgets that he's telling a story. He carefully develops each of the characters, giving you just enough information to question everybody's motives. Hell, there was a point when I wondered if the judge, Thomas uh, Schaefer, if he might have been connected to the kidnappings. Now, either I'm stupid, or that was an an intentional red herring on Wagner's part, but either way, Thomas was clean even though he got a fair amount of screen time, so to speak. Now, if I have a criticism of this book, it's that if you don't already know who Sandman is, Wagner really doesn't go too far out of his way to break it down for you. And you know what? If this were the 20th issue of the book, I'd understand that. But... The simple fact of the matter is that a lot of people who might be interested in this title simply because it was a number one, and this was the 90s, so that was absolutely a possibility, but anybody who was interested in this book just because it was the first issue wouldn't know too much about what makes Wesley Dodds tick. And, and don't get me wrong, Wagner provides a decent amount of info about Wesley Dodds in, Dodds in, his, in his captions. You get a you get a taste of his history in each of e- each of the issues, but in terms of what actually makes him tick, why does he do the stuff he does? Who is the Sandman, and how did he come to be? You don't get as much of that. Still, you get enough to service the story, and that's worth something. Now, of all people, maybe I shouldn't complain. Now. I'm not the Justice Society expert that Michael Bailey or Scott Gardner might be, but I've got a, a decent familiarity with the team and, and, by extension, with the Sandman. So I'm not lost at all when I 
when I read about Wesley Dodds. Still, other readers might be, and that's a consideration with these types of stories. But overall, the style of writing kind of reminds me of The Shadow. The Sandman is played as more of a supporting character in his own book. He shows up, checks out crime scenes, gathers clues, investigates crimes, and then goes out there and apprehends his man. But you don't get much of a dense, rich character study. Now, that works for The Shadow because he's all about mystery. But I'm not sure it works as well for The Sandman. Something else. A second ago, I mentioned the Marvel Max titles. Now, what I'm most familiar with is the Garth Ennis Punisher Max series. And I'll talk about that series at some point or another, but I mention it here to say that the Punisher and the Max series lives in a pretty grounded universe. There aren't brightly colored costumed superheroes running around all over the place. The Max Punisher just doesn't live in that type of universe. Sandman Mystery Theater runs with a kind of similar concept. My understanding is that we get a, we get cameos by a couple of Justice Society of America members in subsequent stories. And hell, I know for a fact, this version of the Sandman has a crossover of sorts with the James Robinson Starman series. But what we see in this story is that Sandman is the only one out there doing what he does. Stylistically, that helps ground the story and sell the threat of the tarantula. The Sandman has to deal with this himself. He can't call in Jay Garrick or Alan Scott to help him out. I don't usually care for it when superheroes exist in their own unique realities outside of a company's mainstream superhero universe, unless... That was the original premise the book started with, like Captain Marvel or Watchmen. And, like it or not, the Sandman is a part of the mainstream DCU, whether this book is Vertigo or not. Now, at the same time, it works here because it's a period piece, and so you can get away with a kind of, sort of, standalone universe and stuff like that. And... It seems like Wagner and everybody else rationalized it by not doing much to acknowledge the wider DC universe that the Sandman is a member of, but at the same time, never outright saying that those people don't exist. Anyway. So, I think that's that when it comes to Sandman Mystery Theater and Tarantula. As with other titles like the three-boot Legion of Superheroes series, or Jonah Hex, Why the Last Man, and some other stuff, I plan to get into more Sandman Mystery Theater eventually. I have no idea when, but it is going to happen. For now, though, I'm going to take a break and be right back after these messages. If you like 
strange pop culture. If you like obscure stuff that you wish you'd have heard of years ago and you don't know what it is, if you like just that kind of stuff, old radio, um, obscure, unmarketable pop culture, uh, strange chiptune music, um, all sorts of things like that can be found on the Quake Reversal Satellite on Overnightscape Underground at O-N-S-U-G dot com. It's an amazing show at an amazing place full of uh, strange and unmarketable internet transmissions. Hours and hours and days and just O-N-S-U-G dot com. Take a look around and I bet you you'll find something. They are the first and best team of mystery men ever to assemble for the cause of justice. The heroes that have been part of their ranks are legendary. They fight for America and for democracy, and yet no one has devoted a podcast to their exploits. Until now. Unfortunately, it's hosted by these guys. I don't care what Julia Schwartz says. Yeah, league sounds like a baseball team. I f- hate baseball. So there you go. Um, first f bomb of the show. Um, How did you not- beat me to the first f bomb of the show? <laughs> Scott Gardner and Michael Bailey present Tales of the Justice Society of America. Fridays at Two True Freaks. I prowl the rooftops and alleyways at night, searching for justice. Blind justice. A guardian devil. (coughs) No, 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 that's not actually true. I'm not Daredevil, blind attorney by day and fearless crime fighter by night. No, I am J. David Weeder, a podcaster, but you can call me Dave. I do read about Daredevil and his adventures, and I podcast about it on my show, Dave's Daredevil Podcast. You see, it's, it's my Daredevil, you get it, you get it. Every Sunday, I read a Daredevil comic and share my thoughts and feelings on the issue, the characters, and the world of Marvel's Man Without Fear in an easily accessible audio form. And I want to take you along for the ride, so tune in each week as we meet Daredevil, his villains, his loves, and more hornhead goodness than you can shake a billy club at. That is every Sunday on iTunes and at www.daredevilpodcast.com. That is daredevilpodcast.com. Take the dare. Listen to Dave's Daredevil Podcast. Did I really just say take the dare? Hey, Jeff. Hey, Mike. Man, it sure is great to be back to From Crisis to Crisis after all this time. It's been a busy year for both of us. For very different reasons. But now we're ready to cover the post-death and return Superman stories. Yeah, and we're about to start the books that came out in 1994, which means that we have so much to look forward to, like Bizarro's World. The Battle for and Fall of Metropolis. Superman Doomsday, Hunter, Prey. Worlds Collide. Well, you're looking forward to that one. Oh, bite me. Zero hour. Zero month. And right there at the end, we have Dead Again. And don't forget the Elseworlds annuals as well. Well, most of them anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some of those really did suck, don't they? But From Crisis to Crisis is back. 
New episodes will drop on Thursday, just like before. You can find the show at the Superman homepage, www.supermanhomepage.com, as well as at the Superman Podcast Network, which is at www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. And we also have a Facebook page that you can like by going to www.facebook.com slash from crisis to crisis a superman podcast dot com. Is it dot com on there? No. No, no, it's not. No, no dot com. Forget that. <laughs> so from crisis to crisis is back, folks, and better than ever. Well, I'm better than ever. You need some work. No, shut up. No, you 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 shut up. From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast covering the post-crisis adventures of Superman one half month at a time. Every Thursday at www.supermanhomepage.com and www.fortressofbailytude.com. feedback to go through this time I received an email from Professor Allen this is dated February the 16th and for those of you who don't know Professor Allen is um, a podcaster from the Relatively Geeky Network he is the host of the Quarterbin podcast and the concept behind that if it's not self-explanatory is basically this he reviews comics on that podcast for which he paid no more than 25 cents and so I have to say as far as original concepts for a podcast are concerned that is probably in the top five most clever and original ideas I've heard in quite a while and his episodes are uniformly well they're always clever like I said they're always funny and he's just I like I like the point of view that he expresses on his show. So, as far as I'm concerned, as, uh, as far as the entire Two True Freaks podcast network at large is concerned, the Quarterbin podcast is definitely one of the best. There's no question about it. Um, anyway, so Professor Allen, he hosts that. He also co-hosts the Short Box Showcase with his uh, daughter, Emily. And speaking of Emily, um, she hosts a podcast called Uncovering Uncovering the Bronze Age. Right, right, right. There's only been a few episodes of that. I'm, I was actually very close to saying Undressing the Bronze Age, except I know that's not true. No, it's Uncovering the Bronze Age. And uh, basically she just is going through, as the name might suggest, the fucking Bronze Age. And so, again, as far as original ideas for a podcast are concerned... I think that's pretty high up there. I mean, a lot of people probably do index type of shows about Bronze Age runs, but as far as doing a podcast about the Bronze Age, I think Emily actually stands alone on that one. Now, the reason it stands out to me is because I've got a serious soft spot for the Bronze Age at a DC. I'm not saying that everything was golden and there were no missteps, everything was perfect, but 
in a weird kind of way, I sort of think of that as DC's prime. Except the minute I say that, I start thinking about the era in which I was actually becoming active as a collector of comics, which is to say the late 80s and going right on through to about the late 90s, I suppose, the mid to late 90s, after which I was kind of forced out. For more on that, listen to my first episode of Trinus Magnus Punches Reality, but I was sort of taken out of comics. But I would say that my era as a collector, yeah, late 80s going through to the uh, late 90s is pretty much it. But So it's weird that in a weird kind of way, I think of the Bronze Age as being... Well, I don't know, just sort of sort of the prime. I mean, the art was just so fucking good. And the stories, maybe not all of them were gold, but I'll give it up to DC for at least being willing to grow and expand. And so, anyway, geez, I'm rambling. Okay, point is, Emily does a, a show called Uncovering the Bronze Age. I've played promos for it about a thousand fuck times. So, honestly, you really don't have much of an excuse at this point, for not listening to the relatively geeky network shows. So that's just something to keep in mind. So anyway, they're all good. I, I heartily recommend all of them. And Professor Allen uh, sent in an email, again, dated February the 16th, the subject title of which is Movie Discussion, Episode Number 29. Gee, I wonder what Professor Allen could possibly be interested in talking about. Professor Allen starts off his email saying, Trennis, I know that emailing about email is a sin. Actually, Professor, I've never said that. As a matter of fact, I've, had a, I've made a lot of hay of trading correspondence with fanboy Miss Prime, so no, I don't think emailing about email is a sin at all. But anyway, Professor Allen writes, Trennis, I know that emailing about email is a sin, but I don't know about commenting on an episode upon which one appeared. I know it's a risk, but I need to comment on the episode that I was recently on about comic book movies. I'm just going to put his email on pause here real quick. For those of you who don't know, I did a sort of star-studded podcast a while back um, featuring what I called the Mary Magnus uh, Marching Society. And basically in it, it was, let me think, it was me, it was Professor Allen, uh, Scott Gardner of uh, Two True Freaks, um, and it also had uh, Sean Engel from Just One of the Guys and Bill Robinson uh, from Back to the Bins. And so it was, I think it was kind of a neat little discussion. And the subject basically revolved around talking about comic books. And basically the question I had was, do, did, did they agree with me that comic book movies have become, I don't like, too important? You know, it's almost like comics themselves are starting to not matter in terms of one's fandom. You can be a fan and never even fucking pick up a comic book. Now, is that a good thing? I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. And so basically the idea was I'd put together this big group of people and we could talk about that. And because these are all podcasters in their own right... We went on probably a thousand fucking tangents. And so what ended up happening was the mission statement for that episode, we didn't really do as much with that as we might have. Now, that's not a criticism and that's not a praise. It's just me laying out the facts. 
we touched on it, but we ob- we also made a shitload of other points, too. And like I said, I think it turned out really well. It was a good episode. And again, I want to thank Professor Allen, Sean Engel, Scott Gardner, and uh, Bill Robinson for uh, joining in with me. I mean, they didn't have to do that. They had better ways to spend a Saturday night, I can assure you. But they wanted to join in with me anyway, so thanks, guys. I appreciate that. So anyway, to get back, though, into uh, Professor Allen's email, what he writes is, one thing I wish I'd said was that the reason I don't get too worked up about movie or TV adaptations of comic book characters is that I don't consider them comic book characters. I consider them characters, plain and simple. To consider them solely, or even primarily, comic book characters is just not where I am. For example, I don't consider Spider-Man a comic book character any more than I consider James Bond to be a literary character. I've run into Spidey on live-action TV live-action movies, animated TV, prose novels, pajamas, and wallpaper. Comic books represent one small slice of my exposure to Spidey. I don't care too much about how close he is to a 50-year-old version of a character whipped up by Lee and Ditko. I care much more about getting a good, enjoyable story in whatever format that comes. Similarly, I don't worry about which James Bond movies are closer to the original Ian Fleming novels. I just want a good, action-packed espionage movie. Like I said, I wish I'd said that on the episode. Enjoying the podcast, keep up the good work. Now, the idea of that, of these characters being more than just uh, comic book characters, basically transcending the comic book medium and becoming something so much more you know, I mean, look, on the one hand, I understand where you're coming from on that, and there's even a degree to which I kind of agree. But the fact is that, I'm trying to think of the best way to put it, there's a truth to these characters that the comic book format caters to. That's why these characters are natively comic book characters. Now, the fact that they've had forays into things like TV shows, movies, radio dramas, and all these other things. To me, that's beside the point. The point is that these characters were basically designed and conceived to tell not just certain stories, certain types of stories. And I guess to give you to give you an, a, an example of that, let's take Doomsday, the Superman story Doomsday, not the character Doomsday, although he is in the story Doomsday. No, the comic book story called doomsday now yeah i know that the trade paperback has a different fucking title i don't care the comic books that i paid money for are called doomsday so that's what i go by if that doesn't sound snooty and uh, anyway doomsday as a story basically depended upon years upon years upon years of continuity in the comics. And I think basically the real germ of all of that, it's not just Exile because Supergirl, that version of Supergirl, was actually introduced before Exile. And so there's that to think about. But basically, I would say that Exile is the storyline that made, among other things, Doomsday as a story possible. All right? And so, what was the what's the basic pitch of all this? Well, Superman executed the pocket universe Kryptonian villains 
uh, Zod. As is, I think it's Zayora, not Feyora, but Zayora, and then Quexel, um, executed the, uh, those pocket universe uh, Phantom Zone escapees, basically is what it came down to. And now I'm not going to get into the you know the rights and wrongs of that, the ethics and everything, because honestly, well, number one, it's not really my point, and number two. Uh, from Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast uh, hosted by or hosted by um, uh, Michael Bailey and Jeffrey Taylor. They actually had a sort of protracted episode about this very thing, and so I would actually want to steer you to their conversation. Which isn't to say I agree with either of their opinions. It's just that if you want to hear people talk about it, they did, and so there you go. And Superman so racked with guilt over taking life, basically develops a split personality, and then he comes to realize it. He's basically living, at this point, three lives. He's got Clark, he's got Superman, and now he's got this split personality. And he realizes that he's a, pot a, a potential threat to the people of Earth. And so uh, he hits the road. He goes into exile in outer space, and the exile storyline is about all the adventures and shit that he had while he's in outer space. And so that was pretty much that. That storyline, Exile, is what basically enabled shitloads of other storylines, of which, not least, was Panic in the Sky, and then Doomsday, and then a shitload of other stories, right? Basically, to me, Exile as a storyline is where the post-crisis Superman, a lot, like several fucking years worth of stories, came out of that one story. Exile, right? And so apart from being just a fucking good story all on its own, Exile has historical value to it in as much as it, the ramifications of that were felt fucking for years. Years, right? And a great big part of that related to... rather comes back from uh, Doomsday, the storyline Doomsday, right? For instance, you have Supergirl there, and she was introduced, she was basically a refugee of the Pocket Universe, and in a weird sense you could say that she was basically the only survivor of the Pocket Universe at this point. And, let me think, uh, we had Lex Luthor II in action at the time, and he was basically a genetically engineered, or genetically perfected clone of Lex Luthor that had the original Lex Luthor's uh, brain uh, inserted uh, therein. And basically, the, uh, there's just a shitload of storyline, uh, st story continuity there. The cyborg Superman was Hank Henshaw, and uh, he was introduced in Adventures of Superman 469. i say it was like two, three years earlier. And so, you know, on and on and on. This is uh, what I'm driving at here is that Doomsday is a storyline that is contingent upon so fucking much continuity, there is literally no way to adapt Doomsday into other media as some kind of a standalone storyline. You just can't do it. Right? It's not possible. And the reason I'm mentioning all of this is to say that, and I'm not criticizing you or bashing on you, Professor Allen, I hope you understand that, but Doomsday is a storyline that you can only really tell 
in comics, right? It's got so much continuity to it. It's got so much scope to it, right? There is no movie that can ever do this justice. There is no TV show, not really, that can ever do this justice. I mean, if you were to turn all of this stuff into a TV show, I think you're probably looking at two or three seasons of the show before you can even really get to the Doomsday storyline. I mean, that's how intricate this whole shit is. And so... The reason I mention all of this is to say that I understand where you're coming from whenever you say that you want storylines that are base uh, that that are good, enjoyable, and just fun to watch, whatever that format may be. And I understand that. I respect that. I am not criticizing that. But what I want, what what I'm hoping you understand, is that these characters were created to to serve certain literary needs and tell certain kinds of stories. And so this is one of the reasons why I think television is actually a better vehicle for comic book characters than feature film. Now, television doesn't have the same cachet to it. It doesn't have the same prestige. But what you gain is the ability to tell these sort of long, in-depth, serialized stories. And even these days, you can do it as a ser- as like a season-wide uh, storyline. You can get an entire season worth of bullshit out of all that stuff. And I think that's one of the reasons that Smallville works so well for me. is because you can have an ongoing storyline like that, and it's got superhero trappings to it, and it just really works, I think, very well. Like, if Smallville were to start up today, I think it would be a very different kind of heavy and very dense kind of science fantasy TV show. The kind of thing that DC specialized in back in the 70s and part of the 80s before they kind of gave up some of their identity, right? And so, I understand what, what you're saying, but I'm, to me, the idea of thinking of these characters in anything other really than comic book characters is to me it's to take away some of the story potential that people think that they might have right because whenever you tell a story in a film format you have to basically follow certain rules there are certain types of stories that you tell in film all right and i guess maybe a good example of that is i consider myself to be a little bit of a brian michael bendis fan right now i realize that puts me in a sad minority among a lot of comic book fans, but I really don't understand why it is that, you know, people, you know, bash on the guy so much. And it's not even really to turn this into a Michael, a Brian Michael Bendis defense thing, as it is just basically to set up my premise. He did an issue of Ultimate Spider-Man, where literally it's just Peter and Mary Jane sitting down in, I think it was like a football stadium or something like that, but basically they're, they're in the bleachers, right? And... They're just sitting there shooting the shit. And I don't think Spider-Man, you know, Peter Parker's secret identity, theoretically the reason that we're all here, I don't think Spider-Man makes a single fucking appearance in that entire issue. It's literally just Peter and Mary Jane just leveling with one another about some stuff. And they're going through some problems and all these other things. And that's the kind of storyline that, or storyline, that's the kind of story that you can only do in comics, right? I don't think you can get by with that in literally any other format. Whether it's a TV show or if it's a movie or whatever else, you cannot do exactly what 
that issue of Ultimate Spider-Man did. Now I'm fuck. Of course I'm blanking on which issue number it was, but I think probably. You know what? Fuck it. You guys have Google. Fucking Google it. All right. But anyway, it's a it's an issue of a of a Ultimate Spider-Man, and like I said, it's just it's Mary Jane, and Peter just shooting the shit, and that's basically it. There's no big supervillain to stop. There's no bank robbery to foil or anything. It's just I think it's mostly them just talking. And like I say, you cannot do that. Even in TV, you can't do that. Literally, it's just pe- two people sitting there. So, I mean, that's some ballsy fucking TV. All right, I'll put it that way. If somebody were to do this, that is balls right there. All right? And as far as doing this in film, fucking forget it. You could never do that. And so, like I said, I mean, w- the point I'm trying to make here is that, you know, the things that make for an engaging and fun to read comic book are not always adaptable to other media, all right? And you know what? That's fine. Every single format, every medium, they've all got their own rules, basically, is the way that it works. And so what you want to do is just, like you said, just basically sit there and, and enjoy a good story, format be damned. All right? And like I said, I understand that, but these are characters that they can be so much more than, than the dramatic limitations of a TV show or the dramatic limitations of, of a film. I mean, one of the reasons that I, that I harp so much on comics in this, in, in this podcast of mine is, is because I think po- uh, podcast, I think comics, the comic book, is one of the great all-time uh, uh, media, uh, media for storytelling. As a medium, it gets... you can, Basically, it's got everything except sound, all right? And honestly, I can even compensate for that some of the time. I can, I've got a zillion fucking film scores on my, on, a, on my media hard drive. I mean, I can spin something anytime I need. And so you, can, you, you get the, the power of the written word, along with the power of, of visual images, right? And you, you have all of that. And you also, this is all being done within the, within the context of a, of a medium that allows itself to tell these huge, grand, operatic stories. Like, I don't know if it's operatic so much, but Crisis on Infinite Earths, one of the most epic and powerful storylines ever in the history of all comics. This is maybe the biggest, most ambitious comic book story that's ever been attempted by anybody ever. Ever. You can get stories like that, but at the same time, you can also get sort of character-driven bits like that issue of Ultimate Spider-Man. And the, and, and the simple fucking fact of the matter is that you can you can tell theoretically bigger stories within the context of film, but they can't be too big. And you can tell smaller story uh, stories within the context of television, but they can't be too small. And so, as good and as interesting and as powerful as film and TV media might be, there's still a limit to the kinds of stories that you can tell there. And these are stories... Honestly, that don't have any kind of limits. 
in in comics. You can tell sort of micro stories. You can tell huge stories. You can tell everything in between. You can have self-contained stories where Clark Kent goes back to Smallville because this guy that he went to high school with has uh, gotten a drunk driving accident, has been in a coma for all these years, and his family's taken him off life support. You can never turn something like that into a movie. And honestly, I don't think you can really even do that too much with a TV show. I mean, I think that's that would be a... Again, that would be a very fucking ballsy choice to do as a TV episode, right? Or here's another one. I mean, Mr. Mixie has Pitalik. Now, I know that he has his legion of haters and stuff, but whether you like the character or not, the fact of the matter is it's... It's extremely risky to bring the comic book version of Mr. Mixias Pitalik to the big screen, right? Unless you're going to fuck it up like Alan Moore did and turn him into a... I don't know, what the fuck. And unless you're going to do that, then maybe. But if you're going to do the the regular version of Mr. Mixias Pitalik, you really can't put him into a movie and have him be the main villain because... He's just he. What it takes to tell a good Mister uh, Mixias Pitalik storyline is almost anathema to what a Superman film should be, and so I guess my real objection here, when you peel everything else away, is that to me, comic book characters are comic book characters, and the fact that they tend to be put into action movies doesn't alter the fact that they're not really action movie characters. You know, kind of ciphers that are sort of disposable and anybody can play anybody else. You know, that kind of generic, disposable, action movie hero type, right? And that's, you know, I, that's what... Don't get me wrong, I mean, there's a demonstrable track record where that's where that's what comic book characters can be, but they can be so much more than that. Or shit, they can be so much less than that. They can just be a couple of teenagers sitting in a bunch, sitting in uh, bleachers and uh, talking about how weird their lives are, you know? It can be that. It can be so much of anything. And I guess what I really want from Joe Six-Pack Average Guy is, I guess, recognition... Not necessarily appreciation, but understanding that that comic books are they're a, a, not they're as much a, a medium as a genre, and the types of stories that you can tell in comics are so much more dynamic and I think potentially engaging than stories that you can get any fucking place else, any place else. And the other thing is that, on just kind of on that note, comic books at their best anyway, they have a sort of aesthetic vocabulary that you can find no place else. Now, oddly enough, this is actually adaptable to, to uh, television and film media. Now, few fucking people ever try, but that sort of candy-colored, I don't know, uh, impossibly good-looking uh, and muscular uh, sup uh, male superheroes and uh, curvy and all that stuff, uh, uh, superheroines, all of those things, and just uh, sort of comic book style visuals where skyscrapers are impossibly tall. Like, okay, just take Metropolis, right? Uh, the sun is impossibly bright. Uh, the skies are always impossibly clear. 
uh, skyscrapers are impossibly tall and all that stuff. Or Gotham City, where every single building in in, a, in a Gotham City is this... And this is just my preference. You don't have to agree with it if you don't want to. But every single building is this dark, gothic cathedral kind of a thing. It's never daytime. And even when it is, there's, no, there's never a whole lot of sunlight coming down because the buildings are so fucking tall. And very limited color palette in Gotham City. And, you know, lots of grays and dark blues, uh, drabby off-whites and blacks and stuff like that. And, you know, you can go over-the-top visually like that. And those are all very comic book-friendly things to do. And again, I would I would go back to... I'm, believe me, I'm going to get into this very much whenever I start talking about Smallville. I finally get into those episodes uh, further along in, in my retrospective. But... You know, Smallville, especially towards the end, had some in-fucking-credibly comic book-inspired visuals. Um, I don't want to give away the story here, but, you know, there comes a point in that show's run where it's like, it's almost like watching a fucking comic book. That's what Smallville is like after a while. And admittedly, like I just said, you know, television and film can capture that even if, most people don't seem interested in trying. And I guess, like I said, I mean, what I want is for that to be recognized not just by Joe Sixpack Average Dude, but also by the fucking fans, okay? I feel like we're sort of doing this amazing format, a just major fucking disservice by getting, by only caring about the fact that the new Fantastic Four cast just fucking sucks. Or or maybe they don't, honestly. I don't know. I it's not like I've seen... You know, none of us have seen the movie yet. It hasn't even come out. Uh, or, or, or whatever, you know? And, you know, look, I want the validation and recognition of my favorite superheroes getting big-time su- success on the silver screen. I understand that. It meant all the world to me that Man of Steel turned a profit while Singer... Well, fu- Brian Singer's just fucking shitty uh, Superman movie, Superman Returns, fucking tanked it. Didn't um, Superman Returns didn't make a fucking penny in profit, whereas Man of Steel did. And dude, I'm not gonna lie to you, dude. I got some amazing fucking validation out of that, you know. But at the end of the day, to me, Superman, the stories that you can do with Superman in in film, especially film, are just so fucking limited compared to what you can do with that character in comics and it it, god it just pains me it pains me that not only do wide audiences not necessarily appreciate that the civilians they don't necessarily understand that it sometimes feels like the fucking fans don't appreciate that or they don't value that and it just it sickens me you know and you know what? There's maybe even a sense in which that's kind of fucking elitist. And what right do I have to say things like that or feel that way or fucking blah, blah, blah. But, you know, dude, I'm I'm sorry, man. It's fucking true. And I just wish that as a fan base, all right, we could at least agree amongst ourselves that, you know what? Yeah, it's great seeing these characters uh, turned into uh, live action. I mean, you know, Christopher Reeve, has he defined 
uh, Superman as a character, just broadly, as a character for an entire generation. And honestly, in a strange kind of way, I I sort of wonder how much of this is due to the Christopher Reeve effect, where we want every single character to have their Christopher Reeve. You know, that actor who embodied that character so fucking perfectly for one generation. And it sort of makes me think that maybe... Actually, first of all, that a lot of Superman fans aren't really Superman fans. They're actually just fans of the Christopher Reeve Superman. But fans of other characters, they want that same thing for Batman, for Iron Man, uh, for Captain America, for whoever, right? And it just kind of makes me think that maybe, and ironically, the real long-term legacy of Christopher Reeve playing that role is that now everybody wants something like that and it's become so important that people have kind of forgotten why it is that we were ever here in the first place. And that just, God, that just fucking saddens me. You know? And especially, well actually it saddens me two different ways. Number one, I really just fucking resent comic book characters being defined by external media. You know, look, it's all well and good that people enjoy, oh, I don't know, The Dark Knight, all right? Yay. I'm happy for them. But what seriously burns my balls is is when the comics become adjusted to reflect trappings of, of The Dark Knight. Now, I'm not interested in turning this into some kind of a Christopher Nolan bashing thing. As a matter of fact, I'll actually go the other way with that and say, I'm fucking done with that, all right? Because, you know, guys, it is no longer clever to criticize Chris Nolan, all right? Look, there was a time when to not be on board with the realistic Chris Nolan, dark, ultra-gritty Batman kind of made you a little bit of a fanboy heretic. Now, you're fucking mainstream, all right? And that's a very common opinion. But the other thing is, you know, at the end of the day, my suspicion, maybe I'll be shown to be wrong about all of this, but fucking my suspicion is that Batman is going to survive the damage done by Chris Nolan. And so, end of the day, it's just it's just not worth worrying too much about, I guess is what I'm saying. But anyway, but nevertheless, seeing that bullshit brought into comics, right? Like, if it were to come out tomorrow, the, the, the comic book Joker wore makeup rather than having bleached skin, I would hit the fucking roof. Because that's not the Joker in comics, that's the Heath Ledger Joker. And as interesting as that character, which I don't consider to be the Joker, but as interesting as that character may be, that is not what the Joker has been throughout his history. Or, let me think of another one. Well, shit, uh, people who are a lot more familiar with Iron Man in comics tell me that the comic book Iron Man went bye-bye a long time ago, and ever since it's basically been uh, Robert Downey Jr. in in the comics. That version of Iron Man has been has effectively supplanted the original or the comic book version, the traditional version, whatever you want to call it. Basically, the comic book Iron Man that you pick up now is pretty much going to be Robert Downey Jr., Basically is what it comes down to. And I just say, I mean, that just, that that bothers me, all right? 
And so, like I said, I mean, my opposition to this exists on a lot of levels. Obviously, it exists on a lot of levels because I've been blabbing now for about 30 minutes. But, I mean, I just... Look, I, Professor, I don't want you to feel like I'm bagging on you, you know, like I'm criticizing you and insulting you. I don't want you to feel that way. I mean, if you take nothing else away from this, please understand at least that much. But, dude, I mean, at the same rate, you know, as much as I respect your opinion and I, I respect you as a friend, I do consider you to be my friend. You know, I mean, this is my real objection to it all because it kind of feels like everything that makes comic books unique, everything that makes comic book characters special the medium and the characters both, are being done a disservice whenever people just have this such fucking boner over a movie that's here today, gone later today, you know? And and that's about maybe the, the best way I can put it. And so, anyway, uh, Professor Allen winds up his email by saying, like I said, I wish I'd said that on the episode, enjoying the podcast, keep up the good work. And so... First of all, uh, Professor Allen, thanks, all right? I hope, if nothing else, you don't take this as me criticizing you or calling you out or anything like that, because I'm not, all right? I'm just... You gave your point of view, and I, I just fucking... I, I gave you mine. Now, if you have follow-up to this, if there's a counterpoint you want to make, dude, fucking by all means, send me an email, because I want to hear from you, right? So, you know, I've said my bit. Actually, first, you said your bit, and then I said my bit, and so, you know, I hope, like I said, I hope you don't take any of this as some kind of personal slight against you, because it's totally not. So, anyway, so that's pretty much it for uh, email and feedback and all that stuff this week. If you have email that you want to send me, you can direct it to trentusmagnus at gmail.com. That's T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can also find me on iTunes if you want to file uh, positive feedback. I'm always looking for that. I'm always looking for more reviews on iTunes. And guys, look, I know that it's a pain in the ass to to write an iTunes review because you got to open up iTunes, you got to log in, you got to find me on iTunes, you have to find my feed, which by the way is Two True Freaks Presents Trennis Magnus, uh, or rather Trennis Magnus Punches Reality. Two True Freaks Presents Trennis Magnus Punches Reality. And then you have to you have to type all the shit in there and all that. Look, I of all people, I well understand what a pain in the ass it is to file uh, reviews on iTunes. But nevertheless, I'd still appreciate it if some of you could do that. I've got I think five or six already, and I'm always looking for more. So, like I said, you can uh, send your feedback to trennismagnus at gmail.com, and you can find me on iTunes for uh, reviews. The name is Two True Freaks presents Trentus Magnus punches reality. So that's pretty much it for me this week. Appreciate all of you taking the time to listen and I'll uh, talk to you all again next week. Okay, so I think that's just about the end of that. Trentus Magnus punches reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks podcast network. You can find the home for Trentus Magnus punches reality at Two True Freaks com, which is spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. You can also find it on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-S 
M-A-G-N-U-S-S. You can email me and my parole officer at trentusmagnus at gmail.com, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Did you know? You can sponsor any episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows. That's right. Simply click the PayPal link, donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode. With your message read in the show's opener, it's that easy. And there's no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at 2TrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, 2 True Freaks gets a cut of what you buy. It doesn't cost you anything extra, and it really helps the freaks out. You get to shop as usual and help out the 2 True Freaks at the same time. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promo section. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. Trentus Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonsecor of Milan, Italy. <laughs>